Gretchen's going to have to run to catch them. <laughs> Before I start the epistle lesson, it is always intriguing to me. We do plan lots of things together in the life of the church. Uh, for this service, when Shane is in charge of music, Shane, Shane picks music. And he and I do not necessarily collude on that. I don't know a great deal about this sort of music. The third song we were taught this morning is really the perfect lead-in, I think, to today's text and sermon. And I never think that's an accident. I think God is always present in the midst of it. So our epistle lesson is First Peter, and it's the second chapter Verses 2 through 10. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to Him a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. To you, when you believe, He is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. And a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. From time to time, I have people who look at me or know something about my life, and they'll say something like, you know, you've really had a charmed life. Well, I think I know what they mean. But I would a whole lot rather speak of it as having had a blessed life or a blessed life. For the good that I have enjoyed is very much a gift from God. Now, yeah, I know the same troubles that all the rest of humanity knows. I've had the death of loved ones. My parents have been dead for years. I've had illness in family and friends. My brother's wife broke her leg this past week and had to have pretty major surgery for it. There's been lots of situations in life when I did not get what I wanted, times when I thought everybody else was getting all the good stuff and I wasn't getting what I deserved. But the real and deepest truth is that every step of my life, God has been there. And when I look with a backward view at life, I know that God truly has supplied my every need. Okay, 
So why is it then that I still spend so much energy trying to plot out every aspect of my future? Worrying about what's going to happen in five years when it's time for me to hang it up and retire. Don't I trust God to take care of the future the way God's taking care of the past? I won't speak for you. I never try to do that. But the problem for me is trying to align what I think I need and want with what God knows I need and want. You understand the difference? We are frequently so childish in our response to God. Somehow we don't believe God still has our best interests at heart. And I think most human beings are like that. We really, really like to think of God as being sort of the miracle worker magician who's there on our behalf. And if I need something or I want something at any particular moment, even if it's not good for me, I get to ask God and God will do it for me. You act like that? Yeah, see, I think we all do at some point. Peter in this epistle lesson reminds us that in many ways, no matter how many years we spend on this earth, we are still children, babies in the faith. So like newborn babies long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into your salvation. Are you longing for the pure spiritual milk so you can grow up? And then Peter says the thing at the end of the text that really ought to just shock us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. That you can declare the wonderful deeds of God. Pretty good credentials, aren't they? You like that? Well, the question is not, do we like that? Are we living up to that high calling? That's really the question. It's sort of like the study a couple of weeks ago about the word holy. There's something about it that really does make us a bit uncomfortable. This idea that we are, we are special. Well, we've been taught in our world that nobody's any more special than anybody else, right? Everybody's equal, and that's true. And yet, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. What it means is, do you really want to live up to that calling? Because that's what it's about. The truth is, most of the time we prefer to choose our own destiny. While we may believe that God in Jesus Christ is our Savior and has our best interest at hearts, what we really, really want is God at our beck and call. We want to be able to demand that God do this or that for us and we get it when we need it. Think about it this way. How many times have you been in a situation, any situation, and you toss off that prayer almost without thinking, asking God to satisfy some need you think you have, never even asking what the consequences might be for somebody else or even for yourself if God granted it. 
we don't think about what might happen when we begin to pray like that. I think all of us recognize there is sometimes this magical, almost bizarre aspect to our prayer life. If you, and I know most of our college students that uh, are here have already finished school, and I think, let's see, high school's out Tuesday? This coming Tuesday, is that right? Okay, so most of you have already done all your exams, but if you pray to pass a test you hadn't studied for, uh-huh, or when we pray God will take away the consequences of our bad behavior, or I've known people who pray that God will somehow change something we've already done. There are thousands of ways we toss off those prayers. Now, listen to me well. The longer I live, the more I know that God can do miraculous things beyond anything I can imagine. I believe that. I really believe that's true. We cannot analyze all the stuff that God does on our behalf because we simply don't have the capacity. But as far as I know, even God doesn't change the past. No matter how hard we pray and wish that it hadn't happened. God doesn't fix the physical things that are broken just because we want them fixed. And He doesn't give us any special knowledge because we weren't more diligent in our studies. Prayer's not a magic elixir that allows us to use God to get what we want. That's not what prayer is. Somehow or another, we think prayer is supposed to be, well, we get everything we want. Then you hear the gospel lesson that Barbara read for us. And it closes, if you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. And down through the centuries, Christians, it says, oh, goody, this is my grab bag. God's going to do it if I ask. So many Christians have come to that sort of a conclusion. If I pray hard enough, if I believe enough, if I'm sincere enough, God will give me everything I want, a credit card with no limits. That's what it sounds like. What do you crave? What do you yearn for? What blessing do you want God to give you? That's one way to ask it. But the other way is to say, do you really want in your life what God wants for you? Do you want the good stuff that God would like to give you if you just unclench your fist and receive? The other way to say that is, do you really want to live as the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, God's own people? A couple of things for us to ponder. Several years ago, and I can't remember how long ago it was, but a TV evangelist, and I know we tend to lump these folks into one large pot, but he decided that um, he was going to send out green prayer cloths 
And he would send you this prayer cloth. And if you would send him money, mm -hmm, then he would be able to have contact with you through this green cloth. And somehow God would answer your needs. Those who returned the green cloth with some money. And this is the way he said it. He said, send me your green prayer cloths and it's my point of contact. When I touch the cloth, it's like touching you. When you touch this cloth, it's like you're taking my hand and touching me. Well, according to the TV evangelist, one woman who had done this received, an, it always gets me the specific nature, $286,000 in bonds. She got another 65000 in cash, and her husband was freed from his alcoholism all in one fell swoop. Now, you know, I'm really sure God can do any and all of those sorts of things. I'm also pretty sure that God doesn't much work that way. But you know what it really sounds like to me? What it really sounds like to me is one of the chief troubles that led to the Reformation 500 years ago. It was the sale of indulgences. Send me some money and we'll get you out of hell. In this case, it's send me some money and I'll get you what you want. I don't think God works like that. Do you? Is that what Jesus said meant when he said, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it for you? I never saw Jesus make deals. If Jesus was in the business of making deals, surely he would have made a deal to not go to a cross. But we keep trying, don't we? You know, come on, God, somebody's got to win that lottery. I saw this in back in the days when I used to actually read a newspaper. Now I do all my news online, but it was a, an, an article from uh, the priest that uh, was in charge of, I, I don't know if it was a cathedral or just a large church in Las Vegas. And he said... Guess what's the most common prayer people request people make? Las Vegas. God let me win. And he said, I tell people, look around you. Do you think we'd still have debt on this building if it worked that way? Even prayer has its limits. Do you believe that? Not that we're limiting God. But even prayer has its limits. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But think about that. So what do we really want? What do we crave? What do we think we need? But I want you to notice that when Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it, He's talking to the disciples not in context of wealth, not in context of material things, certainly not in the context of material success. He's talking about it in terms of God having 
prepared a place for them. It's really about those eternal things. There's two important theological statements that most of us have heard at one time or another in the John text. Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas. Sometimes I think we ought to call him Dense Thomas. And I understand that because I'm Thomas after all. He says, uh, Jesus, I, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip says, show us the Father. And he says, wait a minute. You've been with me all this time and you hadn't figured it out yet? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus was talking to the disciples when he says, ask anything in my name. And he's talking about the greater ministry of the people of God. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about us in, in, as we hit our knees, as we go about the work of the church and the mission about asking and receiving powerful, wonderful things. So often our problem is, is that we beg God for all the fluff and then we don't live like this royal priesthood and ask God for the stuff that really makes a difference. How many amazing things might we accomplish as a church if we quit worrying about the nuts and bolts? Who's going to pay for this and how are we going to do that for what? And really began to focus on what God has called us to be and do. If we set out to truly serve the Master by serving the community around us, and then said, Jesus, we're asking in your name. What might we know that we don't know now? I don't think we're talking about building some fancy new building. But what ministry might we be able to do and fund and all the other things have the volunteers to administer if we really reached out in the name of Jesus and asked in His name as the royal priesthood of believers. What Jesus says is, I'll do it in your name. I'll, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. If it glorifies the Father. Not if it glorifies you. Not if it meets all the little needs you think you have. Not if it satisfies your whims and your desires if it glorifies my Father in heaven. That's the key. When you became a part of the church, whether you came in um, through your baptism as an infant and then was, were confirmed in the church, whether you became a, a member as an adult, at some point in time you were asked to affirm your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And every one of you who are members did that. And that's a wonderful thing. Folks, that's the starting point. That's not where we're supposed to end. Isn't it a shame when we've done that and then we don't do anything else to grow our faith? 
We don't do anything else to mature and to help the faith reach out. That's sad. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could begin to take this holy people idea so seriously? Not that we went around patting each other on the back and say, oh my, aren't you good? But that we went around doing good. Doing God's work together. That's Christ's expectations. It's not I want you to be or someday you will be. It is as my followers, you are the royal priesthood. You are God's own people. So let's act like it. I say it's time for each of us to be willing to become that in as much as any of us are capable and we do that by God's own grace in our lives. Let's claim that. Let's make the ministry here so powerful that it reaches out across East Tennessee and people know those people, they really are the royal priesthood of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.